All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Looking at verses 6 through 25, finishing uh, the third chapter of Jeremiah this evening, confession and repentance. Recall last time we, we took time just to reflect upon the love of God, the love of God for the nation of Israel, the love of God which persists for us today, the love which is exemplified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pick up today in a new message. We see the visual marks, the, the, the uh, um, linguistic marks of a new message here. We'll see in verse 6, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, that's a marker that there's a new message to be given here. And it's a message which is going to perhaps surprise us a little bit in not just the content of the message, but in the audience unto whom the message is directed. The theme of our time together is going to be this call, a shift in tone from pleading with the nation to a call for them to confess and repent, to acknowledge their sin. And that's what we're going to look at this evening, concepts of repentance and confession, knowing that repentance and confession form an important and valuable part of the Christian life. And to this end, it's valuable for us to understand what they are, what they are not, and why it matters. So our text does begin this evening in verse 6. We read this in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She is gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said... After she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. So another message is given by the Lord through Jeremiah. And this message is actually, we begin here by seeing God speak to Jeremiah himself. And the question God asks Jeremiah is this, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done. Now notice who we're talking about here and notice the distinction between Israel and Judah. They are both being mentioned here, but we are seeing them distinctly. That as God speaks of backsliding Israel, he is speaking of the northern ten tribes. He is speaking of that group of people that went into captivity some 100 years before Jeremiah's ministry began. And he asks Jeremiah, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done, that they've played the harlot, they've gone up to every high mountain, very similar to the description that we find of Judah. But then he mentions here, and her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. And so here is where we see the link to Judah. The idea of Israel and Judah being sisters is one that is not uncommon to Scripture. We see it here in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel 16. There are several places where we see this idea of, of uh, Israel Israel and Judah being sisters. And he says here to Jeremiah that Israel had backslide. That word literally meaning to turn away or to apostatize. It's a very strong word. 
It's not a very strong word in our English language to backslide. As a matter of fact, we Christians kind of use that term, right? I've backslidden a little bit, right? And the idea being that I'm overlooking a few things or, or I've fallen back on a few of my commitments. But that is not what the word backsliding means here. It means to turn away. It means to apostatize. It means to, to, to reject. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. In fact, of the 12 times the word is used in the Hebrew, a full nine of them are in Jeremiah, five of them found here in Jeremiah chapter 3, speaking of of Israel's neglect, complete rejection of the word of the Lord. And through this word, God describes the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, describing them as those who have backslidden, those who have turned away, those who have apostatized. And he asks Jeremiah, have you seen what Israel has done? That she's played the harlot, speaking of idolatry, spiritual unfaithfulness, upon every high mountain and under every green tree, on the high places, in the groves, the places where pagan worship is done. And God says, I said unto Israel, turn to me, repent, turn back. But she did not return. She refused to repent. And then, as we see at the end of verse 7, her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. By this, we can see pretty well where this is going, right? Verses 8 and 9. God says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister, Judah, feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. So God says that he considered all the causes for which he had allowed Israel to go into captivity. Recall last week when we talked at the beginning of this chapter, God spoke of a bill of divorcement, that he had not given one to Judah just yet that he called them to return unto him. Well, he says he did give Israel a bill of divorcement, the idea being that he had sent them into captivity. Be careful to the extent of this picture because what we're going to see over the next several weeks, as a matter of fact, what we're even going to see this week is God's promise that Israel will be restored. So we're not seeing in this a wholesale, complete revocation of any promises of God to Israel but simply the idea that God had allowed them to go into captivity. He had effectively nullified their capacity to to be in the land, to serve and to worship Him, something which they had nullified well before He did. He has not permanently removed them from His covenant or anything of the sort. We'll see that tonight. God says that Israel's treacherous sister Judah saw that Israel had been given this bill of divorce, had been removed And it instilled in her heart no fear over the consequences of idolatry. One of the things we hope as parents is that as one of our children grows up, they become an example for the rest, right? That that as children grow and they learn to do right, then they become an example of the benefits of doing right to their younger children. That as our children grow and one of them maybe does something wrong, that the consequences upon them become an example to the rest of the children as well. 
God kind of says here that he had desired and hoped that maybe by seeing what would happen to Israel because of Israel's idolatry, the prophets having said for years to Israel that they would be sent into idolatry, that perhaps the nation of Judah might see fit then to repent when they see that Israel went into captivity. Instead, God says they got worse than Israel. They played the harlot all the more. They defiled their own land. They pursued the same idolatrous vanities, but they went further than that. This pollution of the land, again, we've, we've pinpointed it several times, really goes back to Manasseh, who allowed, as a regular part of their worship system, children to be sacrificed on the altars to false gods, defiling the land, causing the land to be completely defiled. We then continue in verses 10 and 11. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly. They've pretended to. They've made lip service, but they haven't actually done it, saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. In spite of the tremendous negative consequences Israel faced, in spite of the fact that Judah saw this and knew this, she did not turn to God with her whole heart. The nation rather got worse. What Israel did in part, Judah did in the fullness. And in this, God says, backsliding Israel justified her existence more than treacherous Judah. Israel is actually more justified in existing right now than Judah, God says. Yet Judah still exists through God's mercy because of the good kings and such. But God says there's no justification for Judah to exist right now because Judah has been worse than Israel. And Israel's already into captivity. This is a warning. And now with this foundation laid regarding the tremendous unfaithfulness of Judah, God's perspective toward them, God gives an interesting message. Beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree and ye, have not, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. This is a major plot twist here. Who is this message to? This message is not to Judah this evening, is it? God says, go and proclaim these words toward the north. To whom? to backsliding Israel. This is a message to Israel. This is a message to the north. This is a message to the nation that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians some 100 years prior. And I love this. What does God say? God says, I am merciful. This nation's been in captivity for 100 years. I mean, as far as we read, God turned the lock and threw away the key. And yet here is God comparing them to Judah and saying, as he has been extending mercy to Judah, oh, and by the way, Israel, this mercy, these promises, these things that I'm extending to Judah right now in the midst of their sin, the offer's still on the table for you. The blessings can still be yours. But first you need to do something. 
If you will only do this one thing, I am merciful. I will not keep anger forever, but first, you must acknowledge your iniquity. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge that you've transgressed, that you've not obeyed the Lord, that you've done wrong. The message here is in the ears of Judah, but it's toward Israel, calling them to confess and so to receive mercy, to acknowledge her iniquity, to acknowledge her transgression, to acknowledge that she's not obeyed. Seems like a pretty low standard, doesn't it? Just acknowledge that you're in the wrong. That's what God is asking. Just acknowledge that you're sinning. Just acknowledge you've, you've performed iniquity. Just acknowledge that, that this was idolatry. They haven't done it. Neither Judah nor Israel has acknowledged such. We continue in verses 14 and 15. Then God calls them not just to confession, but then to repentance. He says, turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you of a city and two of a family, one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Can you see the message take on a prophetic flavor here? Can you see the message go from just an offer of the day to something that God intends to do for them later? Can you see the promises of God not just being kind of, well, Israel, if you'll turn to me today, then I'll restore you today. But can you see a prophetic flavor to this? That God is saying there's something that's going to happen one day. One day this is going to happen. One day you are going to turn to me. One day you are going to acknowledge your sin. And then I'm going to give you pastors according to my heart. I'm going to give you leaders that are going to lead you unto me, that they're going to feed you with knowledge and understanding, and you're going to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. There's a, a, a distinctive prophetic tone here. There's a distinctive change that you need to pick up on because we're coming into a promise. We're coming into a prophetic promise, one that very much undergirds some of the things we were talking about this morning about the rapture and why we believe in it because of what we do because of the 70th week of Daniel and the, that really all the 70 weeks of Daniel, right? And the idea that God still has a plan for Israel. We're going to see it this evening, and it's going to be quite clear. So he calls for them to turn, and then he continues his promises, and we find that they continue to get more and more specific, these promises, more and more prophetic about God's vision for the nation of Israel. And remember, we're not just talking, we're not talking Judah here. This is to, to the north. This is to the northern ten tribes. The tribes that, that, that were scattered and abolished and, and, and you know, kind of became the Samaritans and that sort of a thing. Verse 16, God says, And it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land. Right? Because he said he was going to bring them back to Zion. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. He says, When you're brought back to the land, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. Now this is linked to the idea of knowledge and understanding. The ark of the covenant was the very hub of God's 
presence among the people, right? He, he, he resided above the mercy seat, which was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Notice the prophetic tone that this has taken. It has gone from simply an idea of, if you acknowledge me, if you repent, right? Confession, acknowledgement of my sin, repentance, turning back to the Lord. If you confess your sin and repent of your sin, if you turn back to me, then I will give you these things. And then now God, it, have you ever been in a place, it's happened in the church a lot of times with me in this church, um, but maybe your house where something is, is uh, you, you have a dream or you have a desire and you look at that wall and you say, this is what I want to do with that wall or you want to tear out that wall and put something else in the place. Or we look at the church and I think of uh, the handicap ramp and I think of uh, the things that could be done to this church and, uh, and yet it's not, you know, we're renting this church so we don't really uh, do a lot to it. But you start to envision it and then that, that vision almost takes on a life of its own where it goes from something that could be to something that may be. That back window is, is kind of one of those things where it went from something that could be to then, well, wait a minute, this, this can happen. And then it took on a form, and then that form took on a reality. That's kind of what has happened here, is God first says, if you were to acknowledge your sin, I'm merciful. And then it kind of takes on a new life. Turn, and I'll give you pastors. And they'll, they'll fill you with the knowledge of me and the understanding of me. And, when you're brought, and then I'll bring you back to the land. And when you're brought back to the land, uh, that, then you won't even need the Ark of the Covenant, because I'll be there with you. And you can see this, this dream take on a prophetic tone where God says, this is going to happen. And now he's telling them what they have to look forward to one day. That he would give them leaders that lead them in the knowledge of the Lord. That he would bring them back to Zion. That, that they would multiply and increase in their land. And that they'd be so close to the Lord that the Ark of the Covenant would never come to mind. Could you imagine in the nation of Israel, a nation that, that longed for and thought about the Ark of the Covenant and what that meant as far as the presence of the Lord among them, so much so that they, they took it out to battle, right? And that was not a good decision, but they wanted the Lord to be with them in battle, so they took the Ark of the Covenant out with them to battle. That when the Ark of the Covenant didn't come back, that there was weeping and mourning throughout the nation because the presence of the Lord had now been deprived in their land. God says, the Ark of the Covenant will no longer come to mind because he'll be there. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the perpetual presence of God among his people. The Ark of the Covenant also, of course, was a representation of the covenant itself, right? Between God and Israel. Well, why, if there is a covenant between God and Israel, right? Within that Ark of the Covenant, there were three things placed. Aaron's rod that budded, a bowl of manna in the wilderness, and the two tablets of stone that we call the Ten Commandments. Those things were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was closed. And not only was it a visible manifestation of God among the people, but it was also a visible manifestation of the covenant of God, right? But the Ark of the Covenant will no longer come to mind anymore. Why? Well, not only because the presence of the Lord among his people, but because the covenant would be fully realized. The covenant would be fully fulfilled. The Ark of the Covenant will need not be there anymore because the covenant will be completely fulfilled. As, of course, the old covenant gives way to the new. 
And this is the promise that God made to Israel upon their return. Verses 17 and 18. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. There will be a reuniting of Judah and Israel into one nation. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. God continues the statements. They're becoming unmistakably prophetic. This is the millennial kingdom, unmistakably. Where Jesus is ruling and reigning among his own people. This is Ezekiel 40 through 48. This is Revelation chapter 20. This is the millennial kingdom. Uh, This is the reign of Christ over, over his people. And so we have given way here from just this promise of restoration to a promise of the kingdom that is to come. This is the time where all of the nations will flock to Jerusalem. This is the time where men will no longer walk according to their evil hearts. And this is the time when Judah and Israel will be brought back into complete unity. The promise of the kingdom age. This description is foreign to anything that we find in history. Where Israel and Judah are once again brought together as a nation. Where the presence of the Lord is there. Where the covenant is fulfilled. Where the nations are gathered under Jerusalem. Where they walk not after the imaginations of their own heart. There is only one period of time where this makes any sense. And that's the kingdom. That's the millennium. I spoke to you about Ezekiel already. Consider Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 through 25. The Bible says, Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them. By the way, the people here is, is Israel. And he shall feed them, even my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Here we see the promises of God to appoint a good shepherd over the nation. This is why it was so important when Jesus called himself the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. Every mind in Israel when Jesus said those words, immediately went to the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. Can I guarantee it? No, but I'm pretty certain of it. That every mind went to the good shepherd. God promised that he would send a good shepherd and that good shepherd would care for his flock, that there would no longer be evil shepherds over the land that would cause them to to fail and to falter, that he would send a good shepherd. And then Jesus gets up one day and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the flock. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, bing, Ezekiel 34. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying on that day. We get even more detailed in Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 28. And say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone and will gather them. On every side and bring them into their own land. You see the promise of the regathering? And I will make them one nation. There it is, Judah and Israel becoming one nation again. 
in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with the detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, so they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, they shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Two nations made one a regathering of the nations, a new covenant with the nations, the Lord dwelling among them as their God, the heathen knowing the Lord sanctifies Israel, the Lord dwelling in their midst forevermore. These promises fill the pages of prophecy, confirming to us as the readers that this is exactly what God is doing here. That in the midst of His rebuke to Judah, there's a call to Israel for repentance, for mercy, for confession. He reminds them that in his plan, they will one day yet be restored. I love this. I love the fact that God is preaching all of this stuff to Judah. And Israel's been gone now for a hundred years. And that yet God feels this constraint in his love to just kind of throw in a little snippet of a reminder to Israel that they're still on his mind. That he still loves them that he still thinks on them, though for 100 years they've been scattered, that he, he longs for their return and that they're going to have one. So we find this realization in the thousand-year reign of Christ we call the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk more about that certainly in our morning series as we progress through Revelation. We return now to our text where God again reiterates the means by which they will experience these joys and these promises. Verse 19. But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land and a goodly heritage of the hosts of the nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from thee. God says, how can I put you among the children? How can I give you the pleasant land? How can I give you a good heritage among the nations? See, God has been constrained. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. And yet God has chosen in His sovereignty to bind Himself, to limit Himself with respect to man's free will. And God cannot deny Himself. And God is a holy God. And God is a righteous God. And God is a God who cannot bless sin. So as God makes these promises, he says, how can I do this? How can I give you the pleasant land? How can I give you the goodly heritage? And the answer is this. When they return to know the Lord. If they would but return to know the Lord, then God could bless them. If they would but de delight themselves in the Lord, then the Lord could give them these desires of their heart. If they would come to know the Lord as their true father, 
And of course, we recognize that provision is made for that in Christ. This hopeful prophecy continues in verses 20 and 21. God says, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye, that would be Israel, dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. A voice was heard upon high places, weeping and supplication of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Notice the linking of weeping to their perversions, not to their chastening. God returns to the picture of Israel as a wife who's treacherously departed from her husband, who has forsaken faithfulness and who has wandered. And notice God is still directing this message toward northern Israel, right? Don't lose that. He describes a voice of weeping and a supplication upon the high places. We've not discussed this for a while. What is a high place? When you see this concept as we've seen it through Jeremiah, the high places. A high place is a term that describes a pagan altar. Customarily, it would be elevated above the people. We even saw this as we studied in Revelation, the various churches and, and, and the, the pagan temples. And if you recall, the pagan temple, was, was it in Pergamos, maybe? That was up for the, 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 the altar of Zeus that was 40 feet in the air, and, and then the altar was on the top of that. That would be a high place. And quite typically, within pagan practice the altars would be elevated and they'd be elevated so that a, a large number of people could see the proceedings. They'd be elevated to get closer to, to the heavens. They'd be elevated as an idea of exaltation. But this was something that God explicitly forbade in the Old Testament, the elevation of the altar. It was a pagan practice and a means by which Israel would distinguish themselves from the pagans by not having a high place, by not having an elevated altar. It also kept the priests from being exposed. Priests would often wear uh, what, what amounts to a dress, and having the altar elevated would, would be exposing to them. And so the altars were not allowed to be elevated in God's system. Exodus 20, verses 25 and 26 tell it this way. God says, And if thou wilt make an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness may not be discovered thereon. Right? So there's this idea that uh, they would not expose themselves, that there would not be any sort of inappropriateness. And as a part of that, God says, You may not build steps up to your altar. The altar may not be elevated. has to be on the ground. That was one of God's commands. So anytime you see a high place, well, you know either it's paganism or it's influenced by paganism. And if you read through the Old Testament, a large number of people who served and worshipped the Lord served and worshipped Him in high places. When they would build altars to the Lord, they would build the altars in high places. We find that this was something that Israel soon forgot and um, that they didn't follow very well. It was a matter of distinction, though, that the altar would never be raised. So this voice of weeping is from upon a high place. And in this sense, it's definitely speaking of paganism. The weeping, God says, is of the nation of Israel. Presumably, God is still looking to the future at a time when the nation stands upon the remnants of their idolatry, that they've perverted their way, they've forgotten the Lord. And we hear the cry of God. And then the reply from the nation we read continuing in verses 22 and following. 
Return, O ye backsliding children. I'm sorry it still says 20 and 21 up there, but it is 22 and following. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitudes of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Verses 22 through 25. So we first see the words that, that, that God says, Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. Now from that point on, from the, the second half of verse 22, all the way to verse 25, this is what God wants to hear from them. This is what God wants to hear. This is what God will hear on the day that they acknowledge Jesus Christ. This is what is coming one day for the nation of Israel. God wants to hear these words. He wants to hear them say, We come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. He wants to hear them say, In vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. He wants to hear them say, Truly the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. He wants to hear them say, shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers. We've wasted years. We've wasted our time in idolatry. We've wasted our time in selfishness. We've wasted our time for ourselves. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us. He wants to hear them say, we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day. He wants to hear them say, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. He wants repentance. And he says, if they'll, give, if they'll repent, he will heal their backsliding. I love this. It's been a hundred years at this point. Now it's been, what, 2,500 years since this point. And yet these words still echo. Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your, back, heal your backslidings. And the greatest part about it is, is that this is still a yet future thing, right? They are going to be healed. The nation's still on the Lord's mind some 2,500 years later. Repentance is still on his mind some 2,500 years later. Love is still on his mind some 2,500 years later. It's not too late. Now it's too late for the generation that's passed. They're dead, they did not repent. And if they did not repent, then they're in a sinner's hell, awaiting the day of judgment, awaiting the lake of fire. But there's coming a generation, there's coming a day when these words will be uttered by the nation. And God is just waiting to hear them this 2,500 years later. It's a wonderful chapter of Scripture. Last week we dwell on the Lord's love. This week we dwell on the Lord's mercy. It's a great thing. Filled with insights into the character of God. This is the God you serve. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the God you served 100 years after he sent Israel into captivity was calling them to repent and that he'd heal them. Don't forget that the God you serve prophesied in these passages of Scripture of something yet future 
where he will do exactly as he's promised and he'll heal them and they will call out unto him when they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. Don't forget the well of the mercy of your God. Let's apply this evening. First point that I'd like to make is this on a more technical level. Don't forget that God has a sure plan for Israel and Judah. God is not done with Israel and Judah. God has not fulfilled his promises to them. And it's texts like this where God is speaking directly to the nation and not just the nation, but a divided nation where he promises that they'll be reunited. He promises that they'll walk in the way of the Lord. He promises that the Lord will rule over them. He promises that they'll be restored to Jerusalem. He promises that Israel will no longer wander. It is within these types of promises that it is very difficult for me to assume some sort of replacement theology idea that says that God has no place for Israel anymore, that says that these are just things where where God is going to redefine Israel as the church and then as people from both northern tribes and southern tribes get saved, they'll be added to this new group and then that's going to be Israel. It's very difficult to, to believe that. It's very difficult to countenance such an idea when you see the specificity of the promises of God. When you see him talking to nations here, real nations, and telling them he's going to restore them as nations. This is a very backhanded promise to the nation of Israel if all he's telling them is that when, when Jesus comes and preaches salvation that he's going to uh, uh, attach them to this new thing called the church and that the church with the Gentiles is just going to, re to, just going to assume all of God's promises and that now they get to be a part of that. This is a very strange way for God to talk. So much so that I would call it deceptive if that's actually what's happening here. If God is just kind of telling Israel and Judah, well, yep, you're going to become a nation once again and I'm going to regather you again and I'm going to rule over you and David's going to be, be there and, and David's going to rule over you as my servant and, I'm, and the Lord's going to be there. Uh, and, then, and then Jesus comes and says the same things, the kingdom is at hand and, and go first to the nation of Israel, right? Go first to, to, to the sheep of, uh, of, to the lost sheep of Israel and all of these things about Israel and that, that, that Israel still has a place in God's plan and then Israel uh, uh, crucifies Messiah and the next thing you know, nope, all done, gone. That, all of that stuff now goes to the church and you can join on if you'd like, a few of you in Israel. What's the regathering then? What's the regathering? Why are the Gentile worlds flocking if we're all the same, right? How does the Gentile world flock to Jerusalem if there's no Israel anymore? If it's just the church and we're all Israel, then what are these Gentiles? God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And through history thus far, His plan has not been realized. So either God's a liar and a failure or Israel still has a part to play. God's not a liar and he's not a failure, which leaves us only one option. Israel still has a part to play. We will see throughout the book of Jeremiah numerous other promises. And you can find it in Ezekiel. You can find it in Isaiah. You can find it in the minor prophets. You find it everywhere. God talking not just to Israel and Judah, but how often does he use the term Jacob. Oh, Jacob, I will restore you. That's not, their, that's not the covenant name. We're not Jacob. 
You, you can call us the Israel of God. Paul calls the church the Israel of God. We can be comfortable with that in, in, from a certain perspective. And we talked about that. But there's no way you can, you, don't, don't call me the Jacob of God. <laughs> I'm not Jacob. The church is not Jacob. The church is not outside the covenant. The church is, but, but, but there are promises given to Jacob all over the place in prophecy. The bloodline, the lineage of God's people. Let us never forget where this plan, however, finds its ultimate restoration. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection promise, which you and I are a part of through the blessing of salvation, it's ours now. As uh, uh, Romans chapter 11 says, we've been grafted into the olive tree. But the nation of Israel still has a part. Don't forget that. This is what we read in Romans 11. And I'd like you to bear with me here. I'm going to read a big chunk of Romans 11 to you now. So if you want to turn, follow along, you most certainly can. Because we're going to read, as a matter of fact, we're going to read the entire chapter. Romans 11 is held up by replacement theologians as kind of the pinnacle of God replacing Israel, when in fact it's anything but. It's the exact opposite. We read this beginning in verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Who's he talking about, his people? For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. There's his people. <laughs> the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin, the physical lineage of Israel. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, that he, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, that would be Elijah, right? And dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. They are not yet all gone. Even so, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So uh, it's not by works. It's by grace as it always has been. But there is a remnant. There's always been a remnant. Continuing in verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always." So uh, this is where people will say, see, the election has obtained it, not the rest, that God has darkened the eyes of the rest of them in judgment, and so they're done with. Well, keep reading. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now, obviously, this is not speaking of the election because they didn't stumble. They didn't stumble at the stumbling stone of Christ. The, 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 the group that got saved and thus were ushered, in, ushered into the election of the church did not stumble at that stumbling stone. We're talking about the rest of them. We're talking about the ones with the eyes that cannot see, the ones with the spirit of stum slumber. They are stumbling at the stumbling stone of Christ. The Jews today are yet stumbling at the stumbling stone of Christ. Have they stumbled then, Paul says, that they they should fall. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. So, no, they have not fallen, but rather they have stumbled in this time to allow the door to be opened for the Gentile world to be saved. And by the way, it's also working in them 
this loss of distinctive, a jealousy that now Christianity has kind of stolen their God, and there's still kind of that feel among Orthodox Judaism today, that Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism have kind of repurposed and stolen Israel's God and, and, and living on, and then there's a, there's a bit of a jealousy aspect there, there. So Paul continues in verse 12. Now if the fall of them, that would be those that have the eyes of slumber, be the riches of the world, because the world through them have been saved, and the diminishing of them, that would be those who, are, who, are, who are, are, have, have the eyes of blindness, be the riches of the Gentiles, because now Gentiles are ushered into the, the, the new covenant. Here it is. How much more their fullness? Imagine the riches that will come with the fullness of, of Israel actually accepting their Messiah. If them being put down as God's chosen people, as those whom he foreknew, if them being put down and them being set aside has brought about the incredible riches and blessings to the world of the church, and the church has been a blessing to the world, make no mistake, how much more will the fullness of Israel coming to Messiah be? What does he say here? For I speak unto you, Gentiles, verse 13, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. He desires those of Israel to be saved. Verse 15, for if the casting away of them shall be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving, them, uh, receiving of them be but life from the dead? The resurrection. Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and he will come and he will save them and then will become the finalization of the resurrection. Old Testament saints and martyrs will be resurrected, will be resurrected at the rapture and the resurrection will take place in its fullness. The idea being that when the church was instituted and Israel was set aside, the blessing of the church brought about amazing things. The Western world civilized the world, brought about technological advances like we've never seen. Um, uh, uh, the, the abolition of slavery in the Western world is a direct result of, of Judeo-Christian values. Things that never have happened in the history of history, uh, a morality, a, 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 um, a success on the human level, all of that came out of Israel being set aside and the Gentile world becoming a part of this covenant the new covenant in the church. If all of that blessing came out of the Gentile world getting saved, imagine the blessing when Israel returns to the fold. Paul says that blessing is no less than the dead being raised to newness of life. He continues in verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy... The lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakers, partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. So the idea is the picture of an olive tree. If the olive tree is right, then the branches are right. If the lump is holy, then... The, the rest be holy. The root's holy, the branches are holy. So anyone connected to God is holy. Unfortunately, Israel rejected the Messiah and their branches were broken off. And there were these wild olive trees, that would be the Gentile world, that were grafted in. 
grafted into the olive tree, what? Of God's purpose, of God's election, of God's purpose to be rightly related to the world so that the world can be shown how to be rightly related to God. God says, but this gives you no reason to to boast over the branches. Don't boast over Israel just because they're in the spirit of slumber. Because the root's holding you, you're not holding the root. The branch is connected to the root. The root is not connected to the branch. Sometimes we as Christians can uh, uh, get it in our minds that somehow the, the root's connected to us rather than us being connected to the root. doesn't work that way. That will say them, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in, right? We were grafted in. the branch. And in order to make room for us, God broke off Israel. That's what replacement theology says, Right? Israel's done. God broke them off to make room for us. Move, move aside, Israel. Make way for the Gentile world. Make way for the church. We'll do what you can't. No, 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 no. We're connected to the root. The root's not connected to us. Well, Paul says in verse 20, because of, the, of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. That's a good thing. Congratulations. But don't be high-minded. But fear for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed that he spare not thee. Remember, if the olive tree is salvation here, then we're, 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 we're in danger of losing our salvation. But the olive tree is not salvation. The olive tree is election. And election is not about salvation. Election is about purpose. Being rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God. This is what Israel was cut off from. Israel had been in unbelief for generations before God cut them off. Hadn't they? Yes. Israel had been in unbelief for a long time. But he cut them off from his election, from his purpose, from now being the people through whom he would reach the world. And he brought the church in to do that where Israel failed. So he says, be warned that if you falter, if you fail, if you fall short, not of salvation, if you fall short of being what God has called you to be, if the church falls short of being God's election, then God might just not spare us either. He might snuff out our candlestick. Can we use revelation technology or terminology? Not technology. He might snuff out our candlestick. He might snuff out our light, right? The thing that he warned to each church successively that he would do if they were not faithful to him. Continuing. Verse 21, For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed that he al- uh, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Goodness and severity. On them which fell, severity. But toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise also thou shalt be cut off from election, not from salvation. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. Israel will be grafted in, back in, if they, if, if they don't continue in unbelief. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? How eager is God to bring them back? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Remember we talked about a mystery in Revelation, uh, in, in morning service, that a mystery is something that was unrevealed in the Old Testament and is then revealed to, to in, in the New Testament, and it is a revelation that could not be pieced together. 
It has to be given by special revelation of God. Be not ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, lest ye become proud, lest the church become proud, lest the church look at Israel and say, God has nothing left for them, lest the church look at Israel and spurn them and scorn them, which, by the way, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, through Luther at least, has done for generations. He says, don't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That God is allowing them to maintain this spirit of slumber for our sakes. That's not worth boasting over. That's worth being very humble over. And so, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, for the church's sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sake. Do you see the difference between salvation and election here? They're enemies of the gospel, but they're elect. They're beloved because of their election. All Israel shall be saved. What does that mean? All Israel shall be saved. It doesn't mean that, that Jews are in by default. Some Christians believe this. The Jews believe this. That you're in by default. That all Israel shall be saved, so every Jew is going to be saved. No, that's not what it means. As we already mentioned, every unbelieving Jew, just like every unbelieving Gentile, has their place in the lake of fire, which burns with, 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 with brimstone and fire, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What this means is that there's coming a generation, the very thing we're reading about in Jeremiah, chapter 3, the very thing we read about in Ezekiel, what you read about in Zechariah, what you read about in Revelation, there's coming a time when there will be a national, wholesale, first regathering to the land, then tremendous chastening through Antichrist, and then a wholesale return unto the Lord where there will be a generation where the nation itself will re-acknowledge God to be the Lord, where they will confess their sin, where they will acknowledge their sin, where they will humble themselves and call God their Father, and they will know the Lord. That's what Paul is saying here in, Revel in Romans 11, and that corresponds directly to what we're reading in Jeremiah 3 and what we read about in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. And it's all throughout the prophets. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God makes a promise, he does not turn back on his promise. He doesn't go back on his promise. He doesn't have his fingers crossed behind his back while he's giving you his promises. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. This is one of the reasons why we know salvation here, uh, that, that this is not speaking of salvation. Because if God gives you a gift and a calling, it's without repentance. He's not going to revoke it. He has not revoked Israel's election. He's just set them aside. He's transferred their election to us, but they are still the people whom he foreknew, and so all Israel shall be saved. Because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Verse 30, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall not be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things of whom we glory, to whom we glory forever. Amen.
Can you see the point in Romans 11? That Israel is in a state of rebellion. In Jeremiah 3, Israel is in that state of rebellion. They've been in captivity for a hundred years. To this point now, they've been in captivity for some 2,700 years. But the promises are without repentance. God tells Israel on that day in Jeremiah 3, there's coming a day when I'm going to regather you and you and Judah are going to come back together and you won't even think about the Ark of the Covenant because the covenant will be fulfilled because I will be among you and I'll give you pastors and they'll tell you what's in my heart and you'll grow in the knowledge and the understanding of the Lord and I'll be your father and you'll be my children. And it's coming and it has to come because God has promised it and the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, so all Israel shall be saved. What hinders them? Why are they still in the spirit of slumber? Why are they still so blind? Why has God allowed them to maintain that blindness? For you. For you. Because He loves you too. And He's keeping them in the spirit of slumber. He'll finish His program with them. That's the 70th week of Daniel. It's coming. He's going to wake them up. He's going to save them. He's going to give them all of His promises. That's what the Millennial Kingdom is about. It's going to happen. But for now, He has kept them in this place of judgment for their rejection for our sakes. That's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling. For us. So don't forget, God has a plan for his people. And if their fall redounded to our riches, how much more will their reinstitution redound to even the resurrection of life from the dead? Number two, this is where it gets a little more personal. Confession and repentance are the means by which God's people maintain fellowship and blessing. God's call here, a call which will be fulfilled in Israel in the 70th week of Daniel, is a call for repentance. God tells them they cannot be restored, that things cannot come to pass, that He cannot bless them until they get right with Him. It echoes the words that He said through Isaiah in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short, shortened that it cannot save, neither is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. We find in the Bible that when God's people fall short of God's blessings, it is never a failure on God's part. It is not because God has failed you. Now, that doesn't always mean sin is the problem in the sense of moral abandonment. But when we fall short of that which God has uh, called for us to have, desired for us to have, it is because God's people have fallen short of alignment with Him. As I said, this does not always mean sin in the sense of moral abandonment. It can simply mean that God has a desire for us, a direction for us, which we're resisting or we fail to acknowledge. But we do see this principle. Again, Job was a man who for a time felt as though the heavens were stone, right? That none of his prayers were getting through. And God for a time was allowing him to go through a great trial and it had nothing to do with his sin. 
I'm not saying that if you're going through a trial, it's because you're sinning. That's not what I'm saying this evening. I'm trying to call our hearts, though, to a value, to the value of living a life of confession and repentance. It's something that we don't necessarily talk of publicly all that much. It's perhaps one of the the great detriments of the Christian churches that exist today that we, uh, as I've mentioned before, we try to present ourselves in kind of a um, sterilized Christianity where we get dressed up on Sunday and we come and things are miserable at home, but we come and people ask how we're doing and we say good. And they ask how things are going at home and we say fine, even though they're not fine. And we are struggling with sin. And people say, hey, how's your spiritual life? And we say, it's great. Even though it's not great. And we try to put on this veneer. And we try to look this part. And, you know, in one sense, some things are not anyone's business. Although lying is not a good thing. But in some senses, airing our dirty laundry. Saying, hey, yes, let me just tell you about all of my problems. Let me just tell you about all my sins. It, that, that, that's, not, that's not the solution. But the danger becomes when our sterilization of, of, of our lives, where it's, none of someone, it's not really anyone's business how, how this is going or how that's going, and, and maybe you, I hope you have a mentor, I hope you have someone that you can go to and be honest and say, this is what I'm struggling with, and they can help hold you accountable, and they can pray for you and those things. You ought to have that, children. It ought to be your parents, if at all possible. I hope you have that where you can go to someone and be honest with them, but that's not necessarily everyone. We don't need people standing up in the middle of church service and saying, please pray for me and just listing all of the sins that you've committed and, 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 and all of your problems. But, but the danger is this. When this, if I can call it this sterilization of our lives, this idea that, that we do recognize that the Lord is good and even in the midst of our hard times we can, we can be in joy, when, when um, we start to think that this is how we should interact with God as well. In other words, we come to church and we dress up and we look nice and we tell everyone, yep, doing just fine. And then we go home and we get on our knees and we tell God the same thing. Yep, God, I'm fine then that becomes a problem. Let's take a moment and define two terms. I've talked about them a lot. Let's define them formally. Confession and repentance. Confession effectively means to own or acknowledge something, to admit it to be true. Repentance means to turn or to return, to make a change of mind that brings about a proper change of direction. These are the two concepts that we see here. When God talks to Israel, the first thing he says, acknowledge your sin. That's confession. He wants them to acknowledge their sin. And then it is after they acknowledge their sin that they're able to turn. But these are two different things. Confession of sin and acknowledging sin. They are indeed two distinct concepts. So we are to confess our sin. The word in the Greek for confession literally means to say the same thing as... And then we talk about repentance. We're talking about a turn or a return. That the person in question changes their mind about a particular direction and so reverts to another direction or a previous direction. And so the idea of repenting of your sin is to turn to God by changing your mind about your desire toward that sin and so changing your direction as it relates to that sin. And we might expect then this. A person cannot repent if he has not confessed. 
A person is never going to turn from his sinful choices if he has not acknowledged first that they are sinful. Any parent knows that there's two elements to getting a child to change a behavior. The first is them simply acknowledging they've done wrong. And that's a big one. And then the second is bringing them to a place where they are ready to turn from that behavior and do something differently next time. Confession is actually a lot easier to get than repentance. But confession can be very difficult to get as well, especially for young children. So a person cannot repent as if if he has not confessed, but a person can confess without repenting. And we need to understand this as well. A person can acknowledge that they are sinful and acknowledge that something is sin without a definitive change of mind saying, I am not going to do that anymore. A person, however, cannot fundamentally change his relationship to sin without an acknowledgement of the nature of that sin to begin with. Now let's carry these definitions into our understanding of our second point here. Confession and repentance are the means by which God's people maintain fellowship unto blessing. Confession and repentance are two different standards, and they do reveal themselves in different ways throughout Scripture. In regard to saving faith, there is a standard both of confession and of repentance. Saving faith, 1 John 4, 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Uh, The element of acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, right? This is the standard of confession, for salvation. What is the standard of repentance for salvation? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The standard of repentance as it relates to salvation is that I am repenting of, turning from, uh, uh, not, not just acknowledging, but that I am repenting of anything and everything that I am trusting into save me. Any or every work that I am trusting in to put me in a right standing with God, and I am placing my full faith and trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the standard of confession and repentance as it relates to salvation. These terms, however, don't end at salvation. And I think sometimes in in Christian circles, we kind of can stop there and think on that level, but they don't end there. They apply strongly to the relationship that you have with God as a believer. So we read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the standard for forgiveness of our sin and a reinitiation of fellowship with God is actually not repentance here. It's confession. That if we confess our sin, if we acknowledge our sin, if we say the same thing as God about our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore fellowship. This is that question that Peter asked Jesus. How many times when somebody comes and asks forgiveness, should I forgive them? In a day? Till seven times? And Jesus says no till 70 times seven. Confession without repentance, however, brings about a cycle, doesn't it? Whereby we acknowledge our sin, we ask for forgiveness, we desire not to sin anymore. That's a part of being in Christ, 
part of being in Christ is that we desire to serve the Lord, that his commandments are not grievous, that we, that we, we are drawn to obeying the Lord. So we confess, we acknowledge our sin before the Lord. My, my sin is ever before me. I acknowledge my sin. Father, forgive me for that sin. You walk away not wanting to do that sin. But if we don't repent, then we start a cycle. We find our way back there again and again and again. The power to maintain a strong and stable relationship with the Lord is not found in confession alone. It's only found as confession is paired with repentance, with a determination in our minds that we're going to see our sin a different way, and a determination in our hearts that our sin is not worth the separation between us and, and our Savior, that our iniquity has separated us between, uh, has separated between us and our God, and, has, and our sin has hid His face from us, that He will not hear us, and Him hearing us, and Him being with us, and His power flowing through us is more important than the sin, so we're done with it. And that's repentance. Only as confession is paired with repentance. That as we, with our acknowledgement of the fact that it is sin, we have a determination that we're going to see our sin a different way. And so turn from our sin and point ourselves in a different direction toward the direction of Christ, do we find the effect that you're actually seeking. And so Paul wrote to the church of Corinth a second letter. In this letter, Paul, in, in the first letter, Paul had rebuked the church, if you recall, for their evil. And then he writes a second letter, and he tells them this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. He says, I don't turn from, from my purpose to have done so, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice that you were made, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Do you see here how, how Paul says, sorrow worked repentance, and that repentance brought about salvation. Now this is not born again salvation here. This is a church. He's writing to people who have accepted Christ. This is them being redeemed from their sinful choices. This is them being restored to fellowship and efficacy and usefulness for God. This is the salvation being spoken of here. Where did that salvation come from? It didn't come from them simply acknowledging their choices and, and the wrong of their choices. It came from them coming to a place of repentance, of a, we're done with this, we're turning from this. There, there's a new direction. Verse 11, For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Now notice what this sorrow, this repentance, notice the evidence of this repentance. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, confessing of your sin, getting right with others. Yea, what indignation an anger over their sin. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This is repentance. It begins with a confession and owning and acknowledging that, that, that what is said is true. But it has to end in action. It has to end in a determination. It has to end in a change of heart that says things have to be different for the Lord's sake. And this is how we maintain fellowship unto blessing. Here's the message to you today. 
Restoration of fellowship with God comes as you confess your sin, and that's a good thing. You own or acknowledge it to be what it is. He is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to bring you back into fellowship with him. But victory over sin comes only as our confession gives way to repentance. A willingness to make a fundamental change in our minds about the nature of some sinful act and our relationship to it. A willingness to forsake, to cast off, to leave behind that decision, that sin, that desire, and to pursue something new. And it is through confession that we have restored fellowship, but it is through confession and repentance that we maintain a fervent fellowship with our Lord unto tremendous blessing. To this end, confession of our sin and repentance, when need be, ought not become a rarity in our lives. Now, hopefully repentance is something that doesn't need to happen on a regular basis and that we are walking with the Lord. But confession of sin, restoration of fellowship, repentance as necessary, these are not things that ought to become outliers in our Christian life. Don't fear confession. Don't fear repentance. Don't think of them as taboo. Don't think of them only for the drunkard. Only for the adulterer. Let us be always eager to examine our hearts, to confess our sins before the Lord. Let us be always ready to repent of sins as we find a a trend, as we find a heart direction that is wrong, and forge a new path of determination to serve the Lord with body and mind. For this we know that the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, that the Lord's ear is not heavy that he cannot hear. But our iniquities have separated between us and God. And our sins have hid his face from us that he has not, that we have, he has not heard us. Failures to experience the victories of the Lord. And, and look, I'm not talking about trial and testing. I've, I've said that already, right? You get that? I'm not talking about when God puts you through the fire. What I'm talking about is a wholesale failure to experience the blessings of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Which, by the way, don't leave in trial. I'm talking about the failure to see the power of God in your life, which, by the way, is exemplified in trial and tribulation, right? But if you're not seeing it, if you're not experiencing it, this does not come from an impotent God. It comes from an impotent Christian. It comes from a Christian who has failed, either a confession, repentance, or both. Israel and Judah were called to turn back to God and God was just waiting with open arms. God thought upon all the blessings that he desired of them, but only in them acknowledging their sin. He is constrained by his holiness. He says, look, I want to bless you, but first you have to do something for me. First, I need to hear some words. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my iniquity. You are my father. I will obey. Confess, turn back, repent. And may we learn from their example this evening. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.